You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning, good morning everybody. It's 7.30, it's Sunday morning and that means it is the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, Good morning, my name is A.B. Bishop and I'm joined in the studio by Greg Balderston from Forest Glade and Stephen Wells from Stephen Wells. Good morning guys. Morning. Good morning, how are you? (laughs) Very, very well. We came in this, well I came in this morning um, opposite way to Greg and I was heading towards this enormous rainbow and it was quite delightful and Greg went the other way. Yeah, so I got the, the rain veil over yes. the sunrise, which <laughs> yes. was also quite pretty. Yeah. Yes, so we um, we both benefited this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, I mean, it hasn't stopped raining, has it? I was in Sydney for the week and uh, was quite overjoyed because it was sunny for the entire week, whereas the previous uh, recent visits I've been up there, it has been raining most of the time. But it's always that nice sort of warm weather, so you don't have to rug up too much. But back to back to rainy Melbourne. Yes, I think the one thing I'm looking forward to with what we've kind of missed with spring is actually some consistent 20s kind of degree days. Yeah, the... the, the uh, last weekend it went from the low 20s to the high 20s and yes. it felt like the high 40s because I wasn't used to it. Oh, that's um, so true, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And the humidity's a bit more too. So, uh, yeah, to, to go from those cooler rainy days right up to 28, 29 for a couple of days with that humidity knocked me about a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. really used to it physically. So uh, um, I'm more than happy not to get the hotter weather, but... Um, it's going to come at some stage, isn't it? And, and yeah, I'm, I'm a bit worried about that transition from this because I think even the next week there's nothing over about 15 or 16 up where That's I am right. at least yes. anyway. Right. Yeah, across um, the board, I think. Yeah, so it's still pretty cool. Yeah, and and it did pretty much go from spring to summer, or well, from from winter to winter to summer. We, to summer, we, yeah. we kind of missed spring a bit, although we had the the couple of days last weekend where it was 30, yes. 30 odd. Mm. Uh, which was quite nice. They were rather nice. And I think uh, I actually enjoyed the fact that there was a couple in a row mm. and it wasn't just one and then a change, one and then a change. Yeah. Because um, I really, like, yesterday in the morning I was out in the garden and it was actually really quite nice spending the morning in some nice sunshine, getting a few jobs done and um, not feeling as though it's either freezing cold or... 30 degrees and, oh my goodness, what am I doing out in the garden? <laughs> BYO hat, wherever yes. you go these days, yeah. I have to say, being up in Sydney, I always notice 
the sort of subtropical plants, how much better they do. So even ones that grow in Melbourne, like jacarandas and mandevillas and stuff, they sort of grow, but they're a little bit objectionable to the weather and the coolness. Whereas up in Sydney, that sort of um, suite of plants absolutely thrives. And it's just, it, it's a really good lesson, isn't it, to make sure you plant the right plant in the right place and for the right climate and everything. Mm, very true. How, yep. much, how much better they can do and how much less work, I suppose. It's also it's interesting what you can get away with, but getting away with something's not always having something thrive and yeah. be worthwhile having. <laughs> the, yeah, absolutely. Which you go, you, you as when you're a plant collector, you sometimes f- forego something looking really good and being really healthy <laughs> to just have it. To have it, yeah. Um, so, and sometimes it's not worth it. It's a lot of, lot of trouble uh, to go through sometimes to have a plant that isn't really that good where you've got it. Yeah. Um, but so, I think that's the joy of gardeners. Like being a gardener, like you, you, you're spot on. Having the right plant for the right location makes a huge difference. But, you know, we still kind of want to experiment and go, but I'd really want oh, to try sure. this plant. I want to see if it grows here. Because sometimes it works. And it works. It? Yeah. Um, but some, and as you said, though, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah. you're going, oh, well, I've had fun yeah. trying. Um, so, yes, there is that sort of bit of tension there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's the joy of gardening. You want yeah. to want to push the boundaries a little bit sometimes. Yeah. yeah. But, I, you know, have some good staples. <laughs> I think so too. And also to consider plants that are at the same latitude, whether it's southern hemisphere or northern hemisphere, I think that sort of helps narrow down choices because, I mean, let's face it, there's so many to choose from. I feel quite lucky because I have a restricted palate anyway, being yep. in an environmental living zone and needing to plant indigenous yes. plants. So I'm sort of grateful a lot of the time because it's just like, well, I don't, there's so many things I can't plant. I mean, yeah. and for example, Greg brings in this massive pile of plants to talk about today and I'm like, oh, I don't think I know one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so. And we're pretty lucky here too because there is, uh, for most parts of Victoria, a very broad spectrum of things we can get away with growing. Uh, they might, as you say, the stuff from subtropical or wetter summers uh, – mightn't look as good in our hot, dry, 40-degree mm. <laughs> sort of summer days. Um, but we can grow them, and and if you put a bit of effort in, you can make them look okay, I guess. In some, you know, you might be able to get away with it. Um, but there's plenty of other places uh, that, like, you can't grow South African bulbs in the tropics. Mm. It's yeah. very hard. Mm. <laughs> so... We can get away with a lot more things in this sort of climate than you can in other climates yeah. too. So we're, uh, I think, pretty lucky in that Mediterranean because, uh, you know, if you add shade, you can get away with things that wouldn't usually grow in that climate. And if you add water, you can get away with a lot more things. Yeah. Um, and it's not even that wet over winter often. Where, so you can get away with things that need a drier winter, for instance. Uh, but... Yeah, there's there's plenty of other places that we could be living in that uh, you can't get away with those things. Like yeah. there's certain yeah. plants that just can't handle uh, permafrost <laughs> for, for four months of the year or something. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's uh, we're pretty lucky, I think, with what we can try at least anyway, even if it doesn't work. Yeah. I was on Lady Elliot Island for um, a few nights at the end of October 
and I'm not sure if you guys know of Lady Elliot. So it's at no. the southernmost tip of the Great Barrier Reef. Yep. And it's a coral key, uh, not a coral key as I was pronouncing. So C-A-Y, so coral key. Uh, and it's essentially it's made up entirely of coral. Hmm. And uh, in the uh, sort of mid-1800s, it was completely stripped of guano, so the bird poo for phosphate, of course, mm-hmm. yep. uh, for fertiliser. And it was just a, this desolate moonscape for over 100 years. People sort of lived there. There was a lighthouse and lighthouse keeper, but... Uh, the government put uh, goats on all of the small Great Barrier Reef islands to essentially feed any uh, shipwreck sailors. Um, but in so doing, I'm sure you can appreciate what the goats did to any uh, re-emerging vegetation. Mm. So Gosh. essentially, apart from eight uh, Pisonia trees, and that's not that's Pisonia, not Persunia. Um, Pisonia grandis trees, they, it was just completely devoid of vegetation. And in the 1960s, uh, a guy by the name of Don Adams, who was an aviator and a conservationist, he started flying there and began this reveg program. And later on, um, a ex-motocross rider, Peter Gash, and his wife, Julie, they sort of took over the lease of it and work in conjunction with the, the government and the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. They are just bringing it back. Like They've only been like full-on revegetating for, I don't know, probably a, a decade and it's a completely different place. Mm, and wow. but these plants, so there was there was a lot of weeds. There was lantana. There was dragon fruit. There was um, the umbrella tree. So they've been yep. going through getting rid of them. They're even getting rid of the coconut trees, and uh, using them. So they chop them down and mulch the trunk, and they found that to be the best uh, seed propagation medium. Yep. So they use that for that, and they're just slowly. Uh, getting rid of all the weeds and revegetating, but in a very uh, organised sense. So everything's sort of broken up into EVCs. They've had a, a Queensland botanist working on the project. So everything wow. is where it's meant to be because the original guy planted a lot of Cassiarina sort of all over the island. Yeah. And they really are an edge sort of plant. So yep. frontline coastal. Proper yeah. spot. Yeah. They need the proper spot. And when they're in the proper spot, they absolutely thrive. And there's things like octopus bush and this entire suite of plants that I would have had no idea. What Actually, one of the plants, it was really funny, I was being shown around the island and it, um, Peter was saying, oh, scavola this and scavola that. And, of course, I'm, I'm just used to scavola amula and stuff and I'm sort of looking down at the ground for this nice little blue fan flower. <laughs> and uh, and finally I said, Peter, where is the scavola? And he pointed at this, like, two-metre bush. Hmm. And I was just like, what? That's crazy. And sure enough, it was a nice little So scavola. was it all regenerated from plants that had survived the mining no, industry? No, nothing Or survived. do they have to get them from the... Another island yes. close by or yeah, something Yeah, so they like got that. a lot of them from Lady Musgrave, yep. which right, is yep. uh, probably the closest, and um, and then other Great Barrier Reef Islands. So Joy um, Bruce, who was the herbarium woman since retired, uh, yeah, so she just worked as a volunteer on the project to work out their flora. So they've got 40 
uh, endemic species, yep. uh, including the Pisania grandis, the octopus bush, which goes right around the edge. Now, that one, I'm coming back to that one. You mentioned that before, and I'm like, I have to look this up. Like, the octopus that's got bush? me intrigued. What's I, an octopus bush? It's, look it's, like? a, it's Heliotropum arborum, and right. it gets to about sort of maybe three metres, but very, very wide. Yep. And again, it's one of the coastal edging plants and it's got this incredible adaptation. So, of course, it's an extremely salty environment. Yep. And it has a number of sacrificial leaves on each bush and the salt goes into them and then they turn yellow and drop off and then add to the uh, to the soil environment. So, wow. Yeah. So it, it creates its own mulch almost. It creates from, its own mulch, yeah. With so, its protective layers. Yeah, but this revegetation, it's been incredible because being within a green zone, which is a protected zone, so they're not allowed to bring in anything. So they can't bring in potting mix, mulch, anything. They just yep. absolutely can't. So they have to make everything. So they've got this incredible composting system which composts uh, scraps from the restaurant because it's an eco-resort and it composts these scraps and creates compost essentially in two weeks rather than two years. Mm-hmm. And then they sort of cut that with a bit of sand and, and a bit of bark from the from the coconut trees. And, yeah, the, the system, I've, I've got a story in the Feb issue of Gardening Australia and then again in the March issue another one because um, it was too long a story. Like It's yeah. the most incredible story and, and there's so many little elements to it and how it impacts the health of the, the, the reef itself mm-hmm. by having the vegetation there. Yep. And it, you can really see ecology at work because there was no birds on the island or very few when there was no vegetation. So these seabirds and shorebirds, even though they spend most of their lives at sea, they all come to land to nest and they all need different types of vegetation. So the red-tailed tropic bird will nest underneath the octopus bush, which is the most fascinating-looking plant. It, It has a flower that looks like an octopus. And uh, things like the crested terns and, and one species of noddy nest in the really short grass and then another species of noddy nests in trees and it, the, the male noddy bird goes off and finds these dead leaves and things and brings it back to the female and she either accepts it and then if she accepts it, she poos on it and sticks it to the <laughs> leaf below. If she doesn't Gosh. accept it, she throws it off. And you can see this happening right in front of you. Yeah. It was bird season when I was there yeah. and they, they're not scared of humans at all. So it's, you know, like what I hear about the Galapagos, you, you're right there next to them. They don't see you as a threat they at all. They just don't yep. see you as a threat. So it was an absolute treat to be there. Yeah. Stephen's madly googling octopus bush. It is, it's so hel- fascinating. Heliotropium arboreum. arboreum. So is that an Asteraceae? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it looks like nothing well, like it. Yeah, yeah. The flower yeah. is said the flowers. The, there's one image in the the um, search there that had. Yeah, you can see why it's called octopus the bush. The octopus bush yeah. because of the flower, how it looks. Yeah, but so these plants, I mean, they just grow so beautifully there, but. Even though they're so wonderful, like I wouldn't have a hope in hell growing mm. in, in Melbourne. Because, Correct. Yeah. I don't reckon you'd probably find one in a nursery anywhere. Yeah. No, no, not one of the like, – I did not know – I mean, the coconut tree, which isn't in Dig anyway. But, yeah, nothing there that I knew was um, quite amazing. And that's a really interesting – like travelling, and obviously when you're sitting in your one normal location that you live in, you get so used to what's around, but then – Going to, I mean, if I go north, 
totally, you know, someone says, oh, what's that? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Because it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a different um, plant world, basically, yeah. literally. N- narrow it down to the kingdom, at least. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. Which is really quite, like, I really enjoy that. That's a really um, in, in, uh, exciting but also humbling experience to be going to an environment where you go, oh, this is really enjoyable because yeah. I don't know anything. And there's lots to learn or just to soak it up and take it in. Yeah. There's a, uh, a podcast uh, YouTube guy who I watch a few of his videos. It's called The, the channel's called Crime Pays, but Botany doesn't. Um, <laughs> he's in Tasmania at the moment. I like that. But he spends a lot of time in, uh, you know, Mexico and, and so- southern USA and California in the deserts looking at the the weird little ecology in in some of these really hot dry extreme places and the interesting part of it is is a lot of those plants you know relatives of those so that you know the asteraceae and and you know the milkweed family and things like that that we know relatives of in different parts from different parts of the world but then you see what they've done in like a serpentine uh, stone environment or something, yep. these endemic species that only grow on a little patch of rock that just suits what they've adapted to over the millions of years. And it's really interesting to see what evolution can do mm. when you throw it a bottleneck or or something odd to go, well, what are you going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> and they adapt and survive, but they, you know, do all these really interesting uh, adaptations to survive. So yep. um, it, as you say, it's... it's uh, it's good to be thrown something you don't know at all because we, especially if it's something that is related, like, you know, the family, but you, you see this adaptation that it's made to survive, you know, in a hot, dry climate or tropics or something that it wasn't used to in the beginning. And it's like, that's bizarre how that plant has done this in our climate, but in a completely different, um, uh, geology and, and habitat, it's done something completely different that yep. doesn't look anything like it. Euphorbias are a really good example. You've got ones that oh, yeah. look like cactus and ones that are little, uh, you know, almost woodland perennials and um, they do, and everything in between. Yep. Yes. And the Asteraceae are another, yep. uh, probably one of the best Quite examples incredible. of uh, yeah. adaptation. Yep. And the legumes, you know, the Fabaceae family uh, has done uh, quite well in Australia, but then you know, it's in the, it's come from the same place as peas and mm. and uh, all these other things. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. It's very interesting to look through deep time what these plants have done uh, when they're thrown somewhere different that they weren't before, or yep. there's there's a bit of a genetic bottleneck or something like that. It's 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 a really interesting story. Yeah, yeah, and and being essentially part of evolution. And if you look at even animals, I mean, recently in the news, the ibis has um, worked out how to eat cane toads. So it essentially picks them up and stresses them to the point where it releases all its poison out of its poison glands and its shoulders, and then it washes it and eats around... It literally gland. scares the crap out of them. So <laughs> yes, scares the crap out of them. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> yes. So I mean, that's evolution. And also, right you know, you, s- you sit there and go, right? So, uh, what kind of conversation did they have between each other to work this out? Like, yes. who died? Yes. <laughs> to make this to get to that point. It was the sacrificial yeah. ibis. <laughs> and how did they communicate it? And then how did they communicate it? Yeah. Um, to get to the point where they've gone, right? This is how we need to do it. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it's not anything like that. Sometimes it's just. 
like pure chance. That's the amazing thing too. It's just true. Good point. Uh, pure pure chance and time. And passing uh, it on to the young. Yeah, yep. and survive and that survival well, and yeah. Probably one just went. Oh, I reckon I could do this, and then then everyone looked and gone. What happened with her? She stayed alive. Yeah, yeah. She ate one of those and stayed alive. How did they do? What did you do? And it just it was one yeah. someone doing something different. Think about that yeah. with mushrooms and humans, like all the mushrooms that we <laughs> eat. And it's you like, oh, Bob smart? died. Yeah, <laughs> we won't eat that one. <laughs> but but then it's the you know the you know the mushrooms and plants that you've got to grind down to a powder and then dry it out for six weeks and then boil it for five hours and then it's edible or something. Yep. It's like how did how did that. How did, yeah. How did we get there? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's probably desperation, I guess, mostly, but uh, um, it is strange, you know, it's something poisonous or it's not, that's one thing, but to get take something poisonous and go through a really vigorous <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. uh, treatment stage and then it's edible is a, is a different thing, yeah. Well, it could also be that, you know, someone left it and it dried and then they forgot about it and then got back to it. Yeah, yeah. And said, oh, right, I'll do it now. And then they've gone, well, how long was that? Oh, that was six weeks. So maybe yeah. that's the magic time. <laughs> and yeah. they've gone, since then it's just been, well, well, you just have to do it for six weeks. Yeah. And, and yeah, there could be plenty <laughs> of other ways of actually getting around it. Yeah. But we never know because we just stick with that one that works. Yep. It's like the pot roast that, you know, great-grandmother handed down the recipe yes. and you just chop the ends off yes. to put it in. So then everyone else does it in the generations afterwards and they realise that that was done because... <laughs> Great great grandmother didn't have a big enough pot. Yeah. And so she cut it to fit the, the, yes. the piece of meat in. And then we get superstitions. Well, we get yeah. <laughs> Crazy. All right. Well, I should read. We only have literally one announcement today. Uh, and it's the Wyndham City Council State Rose and Garden Show, which is on at Werribee Park. Um, today from 10 and it's a free event and I will actually be presenting there so hopefully it's not pouring with rain I've got a uh, talk about multitasking native plants which is a bit cheeky because I think they're all multitasking Um, but I've got a a select number to chat about and then I'm also running a um, pollinator workshop so people can draw um, a little area in their own garden if they want to turn that over to the pollinators. So that's Great. what I'll be doing. Uh, but there's something for everyone there. There's uh, 5,000 roses at their blooming best, uh, manicured lawns, play host to gardening ex- exhibits, plant stalls, food trucks and live music. Uh, Melissa King is hosting the day and there's also Vasily, Craig Castry, Rebecca Noble there today. Nature Play for Kids, there's a posy making workshop, there's a Holly's Backyard Bees and Workshop, Sensory Gardens and Sand Pits, and also guided tours of the Victorian State Rose Garden. There's a shuttle bus from Werribee Station, or you can drive yourself. And yes, yeah, so that's on today, it was on yesterday, but also today at the, that's the State Rose and Garden Show in Werribee Park. Uh, Just a message from Open Gardens Victoria, um, who have been fantastic with us all year, giving us uh, free passes to to give to people to go and see gardens. They've opened 28 gardens over 14 weekends, and they've just got a message. They would like to wish listeners a safe and happy Christmas, and thank you for your support of the wonderful garden openings throughout 2022. The, the summer program has three Mornington Peninsula Gardens, 
uh, that open up in January and you can check the Open Gardens Victoria page for more information of what's coming up over the summer. So I should open the lines to callers if you'd like to ring in with a question or comment or anything at all probably gardening related would be good um, so you can call us on 94190155 or you can text us on 0488809855 I'm AB Bishop and I'm in the studio with Stephen Wells from Stephen Wells and Greg Balderston from Forest Glade and I think we have a call now. Let's go. Good morning. Morning. Is this Valine? Uh, yes, Valine. Valine, how are you, Valine? Good, thank you. How are you all? Good, good. good. How, how can we help? Uh, i about the Indian hawthorn bush. When to trim that? What time of the year? Hmm. It's kind of a waxy bush and the red tips. Mm. That's the one with the, is it either the pink or the white flower? Yes. Yes, I'm not sure. It hasn't flowered yet. So I'm not sure. Yes. I'm not familiar with the common name. Is it one of the, it's evergreen? It isn't, it's one of the yes. Cretaceous hawthorns? And yes. it's evergreen or deciduous? Yes, evergreen. Evergreen. Yeah, I'd say probably the best time would be in the cooler months, maybe before it puts its growth shoots on a trim would be okay now but if you needed to hack into it a little bit i'd probably wait for the the cooler months yeah is it they're a nice slow fairly slow growing one um are you wanting to trim it back because it's uh needing to it's getting a bit too big or are you wanting just to neaten it up up? yep so if it hasn't flowered yet a good time to prune would be after flowering if you're wanting to wait until the flowers have done their thing. Um, sure. But if yeah, if you're just wanting to trim it back, they they as you as I was saying, they're a slow growing one, so they're not. Um, uh, they'll they'll come back, but if you wouldn't go too hard on it, I don't think into sure. the, the harder um, the older wood. Terrific, fantastic. Has it? Um, have you had it for a while? Uh. It- yeah, it's probably about, a, about a, just over a foot, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, terrific. Excellent. Thank you. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I've got another question if I've got time. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Veggie, uh, the, the veggie bed. Uh, I'm just about to fill it with soil and put veggies in it, and I want to – I can't decide whether to do sugar cane mulch or lucerne mulch um, on the top. They're both pretty good. Yeah, I tend to, I tend to use a bit more coarser, open one like the like a pea straw. Okay, um, I find sugar cane is good, but it's quite fine, and then tends to mat. You can create a water barrier. Correct. Yeah. Um, oh, right. So then, when it does rain, um, it doesn't actually like you think. Oh, I've had 10, oh, 15 mil, and you off. go, oh, good, it's watered the veggies. <laughs> But it hasn't, um, hasn't um, penetrated through. So that's why I tend to use ones like the, the pea straw, for example, that has a little bit, it's a bit more open. Um, right. So if you're watering with a hose, um, there's water get, and or rainfall, um, then you know that's going to get through. But both would actually ha- keep that really nice, um, keep the moisture in if you're doing watering from 
um, drip drip watering, for example. And the only other bonus would be that the legumes would be nitrogen Correct. fixing mm. as well, where yep, the, the other bonus. wouldn't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so, you get a good breakdown of um, compostable material. Oh, nice. Terrific. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good Happy gardening. You. Yeah, have, have a good Sunday, Berlin. Thank you. Bye bye. All right. Let's. Um, Let's talk about those weird little things in that black box, Greg. <laughs> so I usually bring plants in, uh, and today, last night while I was walking around looking at what to bring in, I noticed that, that with the season we've had, there's a few mushrooms popping up in the front yard. So this is, a, I think this is the first time I've ever brought a mushroom in. And I was just saying to, to Greg earlier when he showed me the mushrooms, I'd written on my notes for Greg for today. No doubt, fungi free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's case. it's been a weird season too. Like last autumn, up in the forest of Mount Macedon, it wasn't a particularly good mushroom season. There was, uh, right. um, I mean, there was stuff around. There's plenty of mushrooms around, but the diversity wasn't as great as it usually is. And I, uh, especially in the mycorrhizal species, so the ones that are growing. Uh, in a symbiotic or mutualistic relationship with all the plants and trees, there wasn't a lot of those around. There was a lot of wood rotters and uh, things like that, but the uh, the the mycorrhizal ones weren't around as much. Um, and funnily enough, one that usually happens in a reasonably small window in autumn, maybe into early winter, winter depending on the seasons, the saffron milk cap, and that's actually one of the mushrooms I bought in. This one's a bit past its best at... It, it dried out in the the uh, the winds and stuff over the last few days, um, but to actually have a saffron milk cap pop up underneath a pine tree, you know, in summer is yep. a very strange occurrence. Wow. Yeah, yeah, so okay. um, both or uh, well, one of the the, the saffron milk caps uh, an edible species, um, and if you're going to start learning about picking your own edible species of fungi, I would suggest start off with the saffron milk cap. It's one of the easiest ones to learn how to tell the difference between it and ones that look a little bit like it that, mm-hmm. that aren't edible or yep. are poisonous or toxic. Um, so it's a really good learning one, the saffron milk cap. It's got a lot of identifying features that are easy to tell apart from other species. Such as? Uh, uh, so one, one of the ones that it often gets mistaken for, one of the best identifying features is it only grows underneath pine trees. So uh, you're not going to find it underneath an oak tree yep. or a birch yep. or some other species. It's an introduced species. Um, and it tends to only grow, I think it only does grow underneath Pinus radiata in Australia. Mm-hmm. It might grow underneath other pine species though, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. But uh, certainly I've only ever seen it under, underneath Pinus radiata, which it's mycorrhizal with. Um, and there are species that look similar to it. So the one I've bought in, because it's sun-dried a bit, it's got a golden sort of coloration to it. So there's a thing called a Paxillus, which grows underneath uh, birches and oaks and probably a few other things. I think it's a bit more – it's not as uh, – Generalist. It's a bit more of a generalist. Yep. Um, and it's really toxic. So sometimes you, if, you, if you don't 100% know what you're looking at, you can look at the Paxillus and go – Oh, that looks like a saffron milk cap, and mm-hmm. it's not. It'll you'll lose your kidneys or whatever. So it's a, it's a good one. Um, the the stems on these are hollow. I don't think the Paxillus are. Um, but there's like Alison Pulio and uh, Tom May put out a book recently on identifying uh, 
uh, fungi mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Alison's always one of her main points is always if you're going to learn what you're looking for you need to also it's really important to know what you're not looking for yep <laughs> yep and sometimes there's only a couple of species that will look similar to the one you're looking for and if you know what they look like that helps you look for this one that you want to as much as knowing what you're actually looking for does that yeah. make sense yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. um so and the saffron yeah the saffron milk cap's one of the easiest ones once you once you get your iron for it mm-hmm. um like a perfect specimen you can tell straight away they're orange like they're a bright yep. iridescent mm-hmm. orange mm-hmm. And if you snap them open, I'm not sure if this is what one's going to do it because it's a bit drier. No, it looks a bit mouldy on the inside. Um, but often if you snap, snap the stipe or the cap, it'll bleed out a, a fluorescent orange latex sort right. of milk, yep. uh, hence the milk cap uh, name. And you might be able to see it, but there's a slight sort of greenish, copper greenish tinge on the where yep. it's bruised underneath yep. the gills, even though they're a bit old and mouldy. So the saffron milk cap will often bruise this sort of um, copper uh, sulfate sort of greeny, bluish colour yep. as well. So it's a, it's a really good one to learn with, and they're quite tasty too. Like even if you just cook them in the – it's probably one of the few ones I, I eat. I don't mm. eat very many mushrooms. Now on the opposite end of the scale are ones that we've probably all eaten, but what I've bought in is uh, – so it's a, a one of the agaricus, the field mushrooms. Yep. Um, this one's Agaricus xanthodermis, and its common name is yellow staining mushroom. Mm-hmm. It looks very, very similar to the the field mushrooms that you would buy at the supermarket, except if you eat this one, you're not going to die, but you'll just feel like you want to die for a couple of days. <laughs> I like the way that you just described it. You're not yeah. going to die, yeah, yeah. but you're just going to feel like... So it's bad gastro for a couple of oh, days. No. Uh, um, and... Gosh. These are really hard, even though it's such a common mushroom that most people, if they eat mushrooms, eat field mushrooms or button mushrooms or agaricus of some kind. Um, it's one of the hardest to tell apart. Yep. So there's a, um, a a woman in Victoria who's wrote a master's on uh, the agaricus xanthoderma, xanthomedati, oh, I can't pronounce it, I don't think, the, the xanthodermis agaricus, the yellow staining mushrooms. And even she won't pick them and eat them because occasionally you, it's really hard to tell just by looking at them yeah, in a okay. lot of ways. One of the things that you can do is on the one I've bought in, you can see it's got a, a slightly sort of shoulder. It's got a yeah, square shoulder on it. Yeah, that's what I was it. looking at. Yep. Um, so it's not the typical dome. Yeah, so usually the, the filled dome. mushrooms have got nice rounded edges on them. Uh, the yellow staining one often has that shoulder. Mm-hmm. And when I say often, though, not always. Not always. <laughs> And it's one of those things that you can check. Uh, you might know 15 or 10 or 15 different things about this mushroom that sets it apart yep. uh, physically that you can see from the from the edible ones. But you might come across ones that don't do that, like ones that don't stain yellow. I'll run my fingernail across it too and just see if it um, – yeah, that one stains yellow pretty quick. You can already see. Mm. Uh, so I've just run my back of my fingernail across the top of the button and within a couple of seconds they've stained a yellowish colour. Yep. That's a really good sign. If it ever does that, never eat it. But there's others that are still yellow stainers that don't stain like that uh, and and they don't always have that square shoulder on them. Yep. And another good way is to cut a little bit off and stick it in the microwave so it 
sort of half cooks. Yeah. And the yellow stainer will smell really bad. Yep. Um, where the edible mushroom will smell yummy. Um, but again, not always guaranteed. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of work for something that you probably that you can just get from the supermarket. Not eat. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you know, go to a farmer's market or something yeah. and, yep. and buy it off a grower. Or, or so. so, I would suggest, unless you really know what you're looking at, don't start off trying to pick and eat yeah. uh, filled yep. mushrooms because they're very hard to tell apart. And as I say, they're not going to kill you; they just make you very ill for a few days yep. but still who wants that yep. like if you can help it when especially when you can easily get them uh from elsewhere there's i think um uh you know 50 or 100 years ago there were a lot more field mushrooms because there was a lot more cattle and stock and they like richer uh more nutrient rich soils um but a lot of the areas especially around melbourne where you've still got grassland where these agaricus will grow, but they don't have the same amount of organic fertiliser on them as they used to. And the xanthodermis field mushrooms actually don't mind that sort of less nutrient-rich soil. Mm -hmm. So they seem to have taken off a little bit more and a little bit more common now than they used to be. Wow. So Um, you're really going to have your wits about you. With these ones, definitely. No, do do your research rather than just think, oh, mushroom. Yeah, yeah. And, And as I say, it's so easy to get those... There's, you know, if you go to, if you're going to farmers markets, there's generally people that grow field mushrooms, yep. and it's a certain strain, and it tastes yummy, and you know it's going to make you sick. Just stick with those, yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> rather than having, you know, a severe gastro for four days. It's yeah, it's yep. not really worth it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, go to Margaret from Campbell. Good morning, Margaret. Ah, oh, good morning. Thank you for your show. You're welcome. Uh, yes. I don't know whether you can help, but I have a very large garden and we will eventually get some very hot weather, I'm sure. And I don't want my plants to suffer from heat stress. Uh, I just don't wonder if you have any ideas what I can do. Do you know? Sorry, Margaret, go on. Oh, it's too large to cover with protective covering. I just wonder if you or any of the listeners have any ideas what I can do. Do you know which are your most tender plants? Um, I've got some lettuce, tomatoes, um, roses, all sorts of things, actually. A grand variety of good plants, yeah. Well, I think the basis of um, preparing for summer is often in the soil protection, um, retaining the moisture that you have. So looking at um, maybe adding some extra compost into the soil, but but then mulching um, underneath, um, uh, mulching on the ground, obviously, underneath the plants. Um Often when the first lots of um, hot days come, the plants don't cope too well and have a bit of a heat stress, but it's often because they just haven't adapted yet. But um, if the soil has had a good um, good amount of watering, they'll they'll pick back oh, up again. Okay. Um, I do water pretty thoroughly. Excellent. So then the next thing would be to, to have a bit of a heat barrier of the soil so that the, that the soil doesn't dry out. Um, and then when they do have 
the hot days. They may have a bit of wilting just because they haven't adapted yet, but then they'll bounce back a bit more if they've got that um, cooler soil um, from a protection of a, a mulch layer. That would be something that I'd think of doing too and maybe even yeah, just adding a bit more either organic matter in to, to, for nutrients and strength or liquid fertiliser for the, the hot days to, to prep them if you have that. Give them a bit of strength. Yeah. yeah. Sure maybe not for like uh, lettuces and things that you're eating straight away. You want them as nice and crisp and fresh as possible, mm. but for longer-term plants and perennials and shrubs and trees, a little bit of stress is actually a good thing. Um, oh. The more, not the more, but... Uh, the right amount of stress for a lot of those trees makes much healthier, uh, more adaptable plants yep. than if you're giving them everything they need all of the time. So letting plants, longer-term plants, stress out a little bit is actually really important as well. It's kind of like a bit of tough love. Yeah. As I say, if, if you Support them, but be there for them. But Yeah, if you're giving <laughs> a little adapt. bit of water every day to a plant, it's all its roots are going to come up to the surface. And then if you can't water it for a few days one day and it gets really hot... That's the area that it's going to dry out really quickly, and then all of a sudden your plant's very ill, even if it's been there for 20 years, yeah. But again, for lettuce, you probably want to look after it as well as possible. And and, and use a bit of uh, seaweed solution as well, Margaret. That's very good. Oh, thank you very much. Look forward to um, my garden. Coping. Yes, yes. Good luck with it over summer. Hopefully, hopefully this sort of cool start to summer might uh, alleviate it a little bit. Yeah, sure. Now you're always full of good ideas. Good on you. Thanks, Margaret. Have a lovely Sunday. Yeah, sure. All right. Bye bye. Why don't we talk about what you've been up to, Stephen, at work? Um. Yeah, so I um, work at Austin Health, um, have a bit of a mixture of roles, um, and so I'm a nurse, um, but also a horticultural therapist, and also gardens and grounds coordinator, so different days, different hats, but in amongst that I've um, been able to restart some staff wellbeing sessions. So what uh, they are is particularly horticulture-based ones. So obviously in our healthcare setting environment, the last few years has been pretty stressful for many people and continues to be as we ebb and flow with the current um, situation and, this, and the, the, the flow-on effect of that in the sense of changes to work or departments. So there's, there's a lot of staff who are, who are doing well but are also um, you know, feeling the, the pinch of the, the stressors and the challenges. Um, so we... Back last year, we were fortunate enough to get um, a grant to do some staff wellbeing sessions from the Department of Health. And at that stage, we had started them up and did some pilot projects and they uh, programs and sessions, and they were staff um, focused. Um, and the modality was art sessions, mm-hmm. or music sessions, or horticulture based sessions. Um, so it's really good. We we got them up and running, but then obviously with the lockdowns last year that's put a change to our capacity to do face-to-face training or anything face-to-face yep but in the last um couple of months we've been able to just restart some of the horticulture ones which i've been uh, fortunate to to run and it really is just a, a great little opportunity to meet with some of the staff and often there'll be some of the nursing staff or 
um, other departments, allied health members, um, uh, non-clinical staff, and come and do a session with me where I have an hour with them. Um, I give them a bit of context of what it's about, and it's open. It's they don't need to be a gardener to to come in and to enjoy it. But they um, we start off after intros with a, a five minute meander outside. Um, I get them just to reconnect and uh, have a meander in the garden space. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of that being a chance to disconnect from the busyness of their day and the happenings of their day, um, and just um, also for me get some chat with them about reflecting on that about what it might be as they are walking in that space how they're interacting with it what they're seeing but also to highlight that in a five minute little window you can actually de-stress a little you can actually just take observation of your breathing the wind the you know the, the flowers the plants that they might come across because often in that moment for staff they realise that in a normal day they're walking straight past. Straight past. And the nature of the, the day is that they've got to get to point from point A to point B and they've got other things to do. But just so for me it's about highlighting in that little example of it only takes five minutes. Um, and the reflections often people come back with are saying, Oh wow, I hadn't noticed that before. I hadn't stopped to see this before. Mm. And wow, I was reading um, a little sign that said to XYZ. So they're actually um, changing how they see their workplace environment and also for me to encourage them that in those moments they like that's five minutes yeah a minute or two within the five minute walk you can actually just stop and go right i'm just going to take my breath and just going to stop so really just to highlight that the other thing for me it's also about saying hey we've got some really nice gardens here come and use them have mm-hmm. your break so that's just that little example but then the rest of the session is um, a potting up exercise um, so we have a table full of succulents um, and some pots for them to plant into and it's a gift for them to take home. So it's a chance for them to choose some options, um, select what they want to do and really, you know, we don't go to work to take home a gift. So the, the, it's also then changing their um, mindset around being at work and mm-hmm. what it can be. But the upshot of it all is that it's just a really nice, fun, interactive activity um, they get to choose the plant. They get to and obviously talk about them and talk a little bit intertwined with it. Obviously, I like to use succulents in that example because they are quite resilient and yep. they're quite forgiving and they have offer a lot without us Everyone having to... Everyone loves succulents. Well, they, they offer us a lot without having to put a lot into them. Um, and I think the subtlety for me, that the byline of that or the backline of that is that for in the busyness of life and the busyness of the day... There are things around us and things that we can have that don't need a lot from us but can still give something back to us. Um, so it's really interesting. So at the end of the session, you know, people are chatting. Often people have come in uh, as a department, so it's almost a bit of a team-building exercise for them or team engagement, um, and they are actually chatting with each other in a different way than they would have mm. um, in the busyness of a, a day. And it's just a really um, nice opportunity to step out of um, the normal hustle and bustle of a day yep. um, and just to see that you know there's something nice that's come out of it um, and as I said there's a lot of other little subtle conversations that I have within it that draw out about I don't overuse the word resilient because that's it's the flavor of the moment at um, this period but just you know in essence talk about um, what can come out of 
engaging with plants. Mm. It's fun because, from my point of view, because I also engage with people in this situation where some have never gardened before. So I now get to call them gardeners because they've gardened, they've done a session, they've got plants, they own a plant. Put it on your resume. Correct. Um, so with my horticulture hat on, it's like that thing of encouraging people into gardening. Um, but also um, part of my role is, one of my roles is to create garden environments or to improve what we've got. So it's encouraging them to use that as part of their um, daily routines. Um, you know, I've had staff say that on their way home from work, they go the long way to the car because they want to go through the garden. And that for them, they notice that they slow their steps and it actually just t- changes their feel. And it's almost that defragging, it's an old term, I know, mm. um, defragging at the end of the day, de-stressing and just going, no, this is my switch off. I'm, I'm leaving work and all that that entails and I'm just going through the garden and then I get to the car and then I'm transitioning from headspace of work to, to home in the garden being that that um, opportunity to do that. Yep. So, yeah, it's really interesting to, to do and it's been fantastic to, to be able to be back and doing it. And do you think that's something that people can do at home? I mean, even gardeners, often you sort of, you're always seeing the tasks that need to be carried out in the garden. Absolutely. Rather than just going out and enjoying the garden for itself, even for five minutes. I Absolutely. I know from um, my own experience in the garden, I've got a few spots deliberately for sitting spots. Yep. Why? Well, because the design part of it is going, oh, what could I do there? But the bigger part of it is to encourage Stephen, me, to stop. Yep. And mm-hmm. to actually go, just sit. And enjoy this little view, this little savannah that you've created or the, this little pocket of the garden because it is about encouraging um, to stop and to just, one, to enjoy what what is around and what you've created but also just to uh, sit and observe. and Which is sort of the whole point of it, isn't it, yeah. I guess? Absolutely. Like, why would you garden if you're not going to sit and be mindful and present? in what you've created or, or what's there or absolutely uh, and be aware of your surroundings and what you share it with and all the animals and birds and insects and, and the plants and the things that you didn't plant and mm. things that have just come up and yep. uh, taking notice of all that thing. That's what it's all about. I would have thought. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, we, you're right. We often get caught up in the doing, mm. um, but you know, we've put a lot as gardeners. We've put a lot of energy into what we've created. You know, mm. what plant we've we've chosen plants. We've we've sat there and probably dreamt about what it would do. And you know, I often sit there and kind of go, well, the, if my arms in motion, going, well, that bush will get that size, mm. and then that will kind of go up there. And so you, you visualize it. So yeah, it's it's great to spend the time to sit and go, oh wow, yeah, it has grown like that. Or oh, maybe need to trim. Because yeah. instinctively, and this is the challenge, the instinctively is you do then get up and do. Yeah. You do go, oh, I'll just move that. I'll just, yes. yes. Just like, no, Stephen, it's okay. Just seat, do that in a minute, just stop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's, I don't, you know, it is nice to often get up and then you go, you get distracted because yeah, you've put a lot of energy into yeah. creating the garden. And, and there's, so, as you said, there's so much to see in 
from the the minute oh, detail even, of the, the, the slaters or details, the details, yeah, mm. of, of lichen on a branch or or the shadow of of a leaf at a particular yeah, time or, of day, or ants, yes. walk, you know, little tiny ants walking into their nest, or yep. you know, the way a bee lands on a flower, or you know, there's just so much detail yep. there to look at, yep. from the smallest things to the biggest things. It is, and you don't have to be sitting on a cliff face in <laughs> the high country to appreciate <laughs> yeah, your view or your no. nature, or but just to know, sit and watch a be, bee do its job, and you go, wow. That's amazing mm. what you do. You're just coming in and going, and then the next one comes in. Mm. I mean, I get I follow you on Instagram, and I have I'm always amazed at looking at the finer details of some of your photos, in particular. Speaking of the fungi ones, yeah, and just sitting there going, "Wow, that's a such." I know that that's a minute thing because you've described it, but to see it in a photo, you go, "Wow, that that detail so in that." Intricate. Yeah. So if you don't yeah. stop and take the time to see those kind of details, yeah. You just miss so much. And I think you get more, certainly for plants especially, is in plants that are, are, have evolved themselves have a lot of those finer details. Like even plants that you just, you know, weeds, you can look at weeds and the flowers and leaf textures and leaf shapes on just yep. ordinary weeds that we look across every time. You get a macro camera out and take a close-up of their flower and it's, absolutely amazing it's got all these little you know um veins up the flower or something that you've never noticed because you always just rip it out yes um and curse it yeah uh (laughs) so no it's there's an endless supply of that stuff there uh and from that's one of my the reasons i take photos of mushrooms is when i'm out in the forest i'm completely present and mindful while i'm taking those photos yeah that's the whole pretty much the whole point of why I, not the point of why I started it, but what I found when I started taking those photos is that an hour went past and there's leeches biting me on the eyebrow <laughs> and I hadn't I don't immersed it. Yes. You're just fully immersed and you're present and yeah. you're just completely mindful of what what's in front of you and, and where you are, yeah. Yep. So, Stephen, when you're taking these courses, do you talk to people about the physical benefits like the scientifically proven physical benefits of being in the garden and slowing down um uh, yeah i I don't necessarily focus on the 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 data kind of research but um indirectly yes um uh i think like having i'm conscious that i've got a window of um the hour session yeah um and very much it's about a little bit of glimpses of um, info and research and then it's the doing as well yep. um, and the interactions hearing so yeah certainly draw it in yep. um, I think you know that's one of the things particularly in the, the fast paced world of um, today and particularly in healthcare environments um, it is yeah encouraging them to to stop to sit um, one of the things I often say particularly for those in the clinical environments is to to encourage them to get off of the ward um to actually take that moment yes you've got a half hour break for lunch and yes you might need to get your lunch sort it heat it whatever it might be and yes it will take an extra few minutes to get outside but the benefits far outweigh um being in sitting in the environment where you're on the ward still and you can still hear the buzzers going and someone might pop in not always but someone might pop in and go oh about mrs x yeah did you give the medication? You're like, I'm on my break. I need to switch off. So indirectly, yes, do you encourage the the benefits of getting changing environment, yep. getting outside, um, apart from the fresh air, the vitamin D, 
the um, the the psychological benefits of um, changing your head the the framework of your thinking when you're out in the garden or outside sitting under a tree um, the other things that I will bring into it yeah yeah beautiful and I know a little bit about your garden and um, it's extremely creative but you also share this uh, a bit of a common space don't you with your neighbors who are also at home yes yes Yes. they are yes Um, and we so I'm in a a unit complex Mm -hmm. um, and we have a small amount of body corporate um, area that you know, as a gardener, you kind of go, well, I've got, I've used all my space. Where can we? <laughs> can I have yours? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in the process of it, we chatted with my neighbours, and um, it was a, a lawn, little lawn area before, and we were like, right, do you reckon we could do something different here? Um, which we did, and it was great. Um, so the project itself was our lockdown project of where we could be outside, but not technically be around each other. But you know, yep. that first era. Mm. Um, and it was a really fun um, activity to do. Um, we yeah, chose to make that a bit of a uh, a hero moment of a season. Mm-hmm. So it's a perennial garden. Oh, lovely. So, yes, winter is um, cut back and a bit drab. Mm-hmm. But then spring um, and into early summer, um, predominantly with fl- the flowers, the flower components, then that's there. That's the 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 stage moment for one of it. That's the, the time to shine. And then we've got some other ornamental grasses that then peter off into the... I think uh, gardens are more interesting too when they have their seasons and mm. have their downtime and their uptime. And You, you were know, just talking yeah, about that before we went on I, I think a, a garden that looks exactly the same or at its peak all the time yep. tend to be slightly more boring gardens. Yes. <laughs> um, yep. I'm sure there's some that aren't, but... Uh, and I think there's... Uh, yeah, to, to have that point where it's like it's done and it's past its best yep. and you get in there and cut everything back or, you know, in my case, in one of my favourite gardens that I've made, I just whippersnip everything when yeah, it's past yep. its best. I just get in there with a whippersnipper. There's no mower, there's no weeding. You just yep. get in there with a whippersnipper. And it's, you know, it's so many good analogies with gardens. You know, there is a time to do and there's a time to rest. Mm. And I think that's a good ebb and flow when you, what you just now. When that time for the, you're cutting back everything and it's just done, mm. you go, oh, subconsciously you're sitting there going, I don't have to do anything in that area now just enjoy it it's all sitting for a period of time and i just rest (laughs) yeah yes and then the moment of you know particularly perennial garden has this um more overtly you know Mm. that spring you know everything's coming to life and there's color and there's verdant and it's just lush and you're going oh wow this is this is you know i know i get lifted up emotionally and mood wise when it's all just coming together and the colours are doing its thing and you're going, wow, this is great. So, yeah, the ebb and flow is a nice thing. Yeah. And it's it's like they're your friends, isn't it? And, oh, look, you're flowering. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> and then, yeah, the next cycle of life. And, and letting them go too for that same reason yep. is that they're your friends, yep. uh, letting them stay above ground while they need to rather than yep. you going, oh, that looks ugly, I'm going to cut it back. You yes. let it go a little bit longer yeah. and say, well, that's still doing something for that plant. Yep. Um. So, you know, instead of snipping the daffodil leaves down when they start to yellow, let them yep. go completely yellow yeah. and yep. do as much as they can for the bowl rather than uh, Correct. rather than cutting it down early. Someone showed me once a very brief thing to do with the daffodil foliage when it's doing that was mm. to sort of clump it and then turn it on itself and tie, tie it up. in a knot, yeah. So it just sort of sits up so it doesn't look all floppy. So yep. for those that are wanting not to get rid of, you know, to get rid of the floppiness and that little bit shabby look, 
It's also good to have meadow plants as well that take your eye off those things that just grow through it. And by the time the daff leaves are looking a bit off, you've got all these little daisy flowers or whatever it is that you've introduced into this meadow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, uh, there's ways around it. And, um, and yeah, I guess I'm not a neat freak either. So I don't need (laughs) to have everything like that. And I prefer it not. Yeah. 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 So, and it, it certainly, is nice because you get more time for what you're saying is sitting and enjoying it and yeah. observing it rather than constantly having to pick up sticks and mm. yep. uh, trim things. <laughs> and also what you were saying, Greg, like with that friendship with plants, just appreciating that at this particular time you are doing your other thing. You're not looking amazing with a little flower, but you are still there, you're still valuable mm. and you're – gathering nutrients for the following uh, season. And you can be surprised. Um, a, a good example is one of the little South African oxaluses, um, oxalis herder, which, you know, usually you, you, with oxalis, it's either the leaves or the flowers that you're interested yep. in. And th- there's others that do it as well, but herder is a really good example. It has these sort of really long, for an oxalis, uh, leaf stalks. They're almost like um, a, a conifer a, a, a stem of conifer or something, uh, so it's it's got uh, whirling leaves up the up the stem. The stems are probably about twenty centimeters long. Can get up to about twenty centimeters, and they tend to droop and hang over. So they're really good along the tops of rock walls, and they sort of hang over and look like little euphorbias or conifers. And then in spring, when everything's coming to life and looking verdant and green and bright, and there's hope ahead, these pretty little oxalis go autumn colours in spring because that's their time for dying down. So they go bright yellows and reds ah. and you get the, you get these little moments of this beautiful autumn colour and amongst all the spring yep. new growth, there's something going to sleep uh, with this beautiful autumn colour. So Excellent. Um, yeah, let, letting things do go through their natural process, often you're surprised by... Mm. That sounds like that a there's some more beautiful plant. things. Oh, the, yeah, the oxalis are, are pretty yeah. pa- fascinating. Yes. Very <laughs> cute. All right, let's go to Colin in Balaclava. Good morning, Colin. Yeah, good morning, uh, panel. How are we? Very well, Good, thank good you. morning. That's good. Um, I was given a camellia called Sweet Jane. Um, about uh, uh, My wife died about five months ago, and I left it outside on uh, on a bench. And um, it's um, it's um, not looking too good. I've uh, all the leaves. Have, it looks like it's dead, actually. And I, I don't know if I've overwatered it or underwatered it. And all um, I've cut a little bit of it back. What should I do? Can I save it? One one of the first things to see if it's still able to come back is to make sure that the the trunk and the stems have got some uh, green in them still. So mm-hmm. one thing I would do would be use your thumbnail or something and just sort of scratch the bark a little bit down lower. Yeah. And if it's still green under there, um, just a little scratch. And if it's still sort of green and uh, healthy looking, there's some hope that, it will, that, that you might get something back. Um, if it's brown or dried or wrinkled or whatever, then at least, you know, that you don't need to put any more effort into it. It's 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 gone. Um, yeah, get, a, get another one. Yeah, yeah, yep. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, so the first thing I'd do is, is to check the older 
stems and uh, branches and see if there's still a bit of green in them. Um, maybe, I don't know if I'd give it a haircut just yet. I'd probably, uh, yeah, check. If it's really wet in the pot, then there's a chance yeah. you've probably maybe overwatered it. They do different yeah, it had, things. It had this fibrous sort of stuff on the top. It was a little bit hard to know if it was, you know, the soil was dry underneath or right. not. And, uh, and I've, you know, I've been running around doing every other thing and trying yeah, yeah, to yeah. Cook. Yep. How big is the how big's the pot and how big's the plant? Um, I suppose it's about oh, six inches, eight inches in diameter, and it's been in a been in plastic with you know with paper paper yep. wrapped around it, and um, and uh, you know I, I just left it out there and I didn't do anything else. But uh, um, Bev always listened to your program, and uh, she had a, we only got a twenty foot um, wide. A block in Balaclava, they're all workmen's yep. cottages, and uh, it, there's a lovely garden in front and a lovely garden at the back. And uh, so I'm uh, got my hands full trying yeah. to yeah. Yep. Well, keep it alive. And the, the good the good news is is that it should be easy to get one that's genetically exactly the same anyway. So so. Yeah. Um, Worst case scenario, you've still got the same plant. Uh, you could probably go and find one fairly easily and still have that same plant and same memory of it. Yeah, um, sure. But, yeah, as I said, I'd check the stems and see if they're still green. If they're still green, uh, maybe take it out of the bag or whatever so it's just in the pot yeah, and you I can see yeah, whether it's too wet or too dry. Um, and a little bit of sea salt often helps, um, okay. especially if it's been dried out and it's under stress mm. from that. Uh mm. Uh, yeah, and, and just uh, see how you go. Um, yeah, and it might right. send out some new shoots. Camellias are, are pretty tough. I've shifted a few at Forest Glade where they've come out with no root balls at all and like six and eight foot big camellias yep. that have been there for 15 or 20 years mm. and I had to dig them out and because you, you never know where the roots are under the ground so you, you no. whack your shovel in and chop through this massive big root and that's pretty much its main feeder. And they don't have many fibrous roots, and you think, oh, that's gone. It's not going to yep. survive. And yeah. it pulls yeah. through quite happily. And yeah. then there's others that you shift, and you think you've got everything right, and it's all healthy, and you give it a bit of a haircut, and you stick it in the ground, and it just never grows again. And it yeah. takes well, about a year and a half to go yellow and, <laughs> no. and go. Yeah. Well, when our house got remodeled, um, you know, we kept the first two rooms in the veranda and knocked down the rest. And, and uh, there was one out the front. And uh, the boys who were doing it um, were throwing, you know, paint and everything outside, and and we moved it, and uh, it it came back. So mm, uh, yeah, maybe there's so, maybe there's hope for this yet. Yeah, I think once you've done um, the checking of the stem and the the whether that's still got green, are you do you have a spot for it that you've got to go in the garden? Uh, <laughs> or is it is it one that you're wanting to keep in a pot? Because I was just thinking either get it into the ground um, and get it into its happy spot or repot it onto a bigger pot um, if you're wanting so, it to stay in a pot and um, just give it a bit more uh, soil substance, potting mix. So a, a part shade, part sun spot or they're pretty hardy, uh, you know, in, in open sun or would it be... It depends. I, I think some some do a bit better in more sun, but most of them do okay in semi shade. So it's probably the safest thing. And if you're going to plant it out about now, 
Yeah, it'd probably be better in a slightly shadier spot, a, a light, open, shady spot. Uh, yeah, yeah they, I don't think they need a lot of direct sunlight, but certainly but, you wouldn't want to yeah. stick them underneath a big evergreen tree. They might struggle no. and get a bit leggy. No. no, a bit hard to find. But they are easier to look after in the ground than, than in the pots, yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. I'll try that. Thank you very much for all your help. Oh, you're welcome. The good work. <laughs> good good on you, Colin. Thanks so much. Thanks very much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, just uh, Googled that little uh, camellia. It's a, it's a light pink camellia that was bred in Victoria and um, doesn't mind a bit of sun but happy in sh- lightly shaded never, spot as well. I think the japonica, uh, camellia japonicas can handle a little bit more sun but I always get it confused if it's them or the, the sasanquas. <laughs> yes, I think it's the sasanquas that are a bit more because they're the smaller leaf. Yeah. yeah. So they tolerate sun a little bit more. Oh, okay, memory? right. Yeah, I always get I'm not a camellia grower. So. And they, they sort of... A, all of them seem to go fairly well at Forest Glade as well. Yeah, well they were up on the mount, so you yes. just sort of yeah. stick them anywhere and they're fine. But, they're uh, happy, yeah. 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 It's a nice little one, that one. Looked up too. Nice yeah, gorgeous. Pale pink. Beautiful flower. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm A.B. Bishop. I'm in the studio with Stephen Wells and Greg Balderston. If you would like to give us a call, you can call us on 94190155 or send through a text on 0488 Eight double five, and we will be going through until nine fifteen this morning. Now, our friends uh, Vicky and Peter from Notting Hill they sent through a text wondering if any of us have been to Dangar Island on the Hawkesbury River in northern Sydney, and they say it's a fantastic spot for all the subtropical plants. You either of you have never no, heard of it? No, that sounds quite but fascinating. On the Hawkesbury, I imagine it would be quite delightful. Yes. I must add that to my um, my list. Must-do list. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, there's a lot. You've got to go to Lady Elliot. Yes. That is a must-do if you're into birds or snorkeling because being part, like, it's literally in the Great Barrier Reef. So on the occasion when I wasn't interviewing someone or taking photos, you'd go out of your little cottage and walk about 20 steps and you are, you can flop yourself into the Great Barrier Reef. So wow. Saw turtles, sharks, rays. I'm adding more and more to the one day win list. Yeah. Vicky and Peter's yours. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot going on. Hey, Greg, what are some of the plants that you brought in? Um, well, the first two I can talk about are the, I bought another Gladian <laughs> and an Ixia. So the Gladiolus is probably one of my favourite gladdies, and that's saying something because they're probably one of my favourite bulbs as well. Uh, this is It's actually a cultivar, and I'm usually a fan of species things, but this one's a, a hybrid between uh, Gladiolus tristis and Gladiolus cardinalis, probably. Um, it's called uh, – they're, they're called colvillii cultivars or hybrids. Um, this one's called uh, ruba, um, and it's – one of those glads, I, I think I first saw it probably when I was 14 or 15 and just completely smitten by it and have had it since. I haven't got that many at the moment, actually, so hopefully you can bulk them up in numbers a little again, a, a little bit again into the future. So when it comes out, it's got very pale outer petals. Mm. Um, so when it's in full bud, it almost looks like it's going to be a soft pink, almost white, silvery white colour. And then... When the petals open, they're the most beautiful raspberry red mm. with these white, uh, uh, white little flares on the lower petals. Um, 
it's a real stunner. So the 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 red comes from its cardinalis parentage, mm-hmm. which is yep. obviously a, a cardinal red, yep. uh, and the tristis is one of the floodplain gladiolus. Um, gladys are pri- quite promiscuous, so you can do a lot of crossing. Uh, if you're into hybridising plants, start collecting species gladys because there's a lot of it that hasn't been done mm-hmm. before, and um, there's pr- some. Uh, really interesting combinations you can get out of them once you figure out which cross with which. So Tristus in its natural form is pretty much white. Uh, it's got a beautiful perfume at night time and very narrow leaves and Cardinalis has got, has got these big uh, cardinal red flowers with white falls and big thick strappy leaves like a bit closer to what a hybrid gladi is, I guess. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, this is just a, a, a really pretty – Charming gladi makes nice little clumps, and as I say, it's that colour combination between the pale outer petals and the cream and raspberry red centre. Is that stem height indicative of what it would usually? Uh, this is a smallish one. Yeah, um, they get up to about at most a metre. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so a healthy clump after five or ten years. If just let's say you bought say five bulbs. Um, a healthy clump after 10 years might have 30 to 40 flowers on it, up to, up to, or between, say, 50 centimetres and 80 centimetres, probably on average. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Really pretty. A nice foliage, too, as I say. It's got these very narrow, uh, spiky, upright leaves on it. It's it's quite a pretty plant. What was the name of it again? So it's Gladiolus colvellii ruba. And I'd say, uh, the best chance of buying it would be from Tonkin's bulbs. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jane's probably got them, I, I would assume. Yep. Now, the other one is an Ixia. Um, again, it's a cultivar. It's not the the uh, the species form. Um, this is a Viridiflorus uh, hybrid mm-hmm. or cultivar. Um, it's probably Polystachia, I think, is the other parent plant. I'm not really sure, though. Um, it's not as strong in colour as the straight Ixia Viridiflora, which is a really bright duck-ed duck egg greeny blue um but it's a much better garden plant so often viridiflora in the garden will struggle a little bit uh it needs a particular soil and if it's you know too damp in summer it'll rot out and it mightn't flower very well and it gets funny little wrinkled petals some years Mm -hmm. and it's picky um these aren't these will get up to a meter meter and a half tall sometimes Mm -hmm. Um, they're instead of that bright duck egg blue, it's more of a sky blue. So yep. it's still a beautiful blue color, yep. a light blue. Um, I don't, I've never had any troubles with diseases or it deciding that it doesn't like there and pouting and stuff like that. It just goes, um, it's not weedy, but, yep. uh, what I used to do with them when I was trying to get more of them is I'd plant uh, some big bulbs in an area, say 10 or 20 bulbs in an area. I'd leave them there for about three years and then I'd dig up the clump and only take the flowering size bulbs out of that clump and leave all the little pips there. Yep. And within two or three years after that, you'd have two clumps the same size with the same amount of flowers. So yep. you can almost double the amount of flowers every couple of years yep. if you just leave all the little bulbs and just take the flowering size bulbs and plant them somewhere new yep. Yep. and just keep doing that and you can end up with thousands of them and a lot of these south african bulbs are weedy now native environment not because they seed a lot it's because of the disturbance of the soil 
So especially a lot of the Oxalis oh. and a lot of the Weedy Gladys and Ixias and Tritonias, yep. some of them set seed, um, but a lot of them are actually spread around because we grade the sides of roads yep. or it, like in cemeteries where, you know, we tend to dig a lot of holes in cemeteries, which disturbs the soil, yep. and then all of a sudden you've got Oxalis and Ixias and sort of things yeah, everywhere. Okay. And it's that disturbing of the soil that spreads these little pips around and uh, increases their, their f- field um, so I've, I've heard a lot of people trying to buy Ixia viridiflora and they end up with this hybrid. Oh. It's some si- sometimes sold as teal or I think Elvira is another name. I'm not sure how good those names are. A lot of the ones I've got at home are s- uh, seed grown uh, from a guy called Barney Hutton who was a member of the Mount Macedon Horticultural Society for many years. Um, so I don't know about the names, but it's the viridiflora hybrid. And you get really upset because you've bought this bulb and you think it's going to be this beautiful duck egg blue and it's just this pale blue and, yep. you know. But if you if that has happened to you, uh, it's not a bad thing. These are actually a really good garden plant. Mm-hmm. They're really pretty. They make big clumps. They're quite tall and they're bomb-proof. So, look, yeah, they look, look great. Like, so I'm just admiring this, the spray of the stem. Yep. Do they stay quite upright or do they arch over and sort of flop a little they they... cannot they do arch over a little bit so they don't they don't sit straight up like this they 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 tend to arch out a little bit um although it can vary uh from spot to spot yeah okay the tallest ones i've had are my height so they're you know over five feet yeah yeah nearly six feet tall um uh and those ones tend to arch a little bit nice uh they also have secondary flowers so even when the the main flower spike finishes, you still get these bits of blue coming out lower down on the stems. Yep. So they're at their best for probably three weeks, four yep. weeks, which is a pretty good flowering time yeah. for a bulb. Yeah. Um, but that yeah. extends a little bit because you know you get later ones and the and the secondary spikes further down the stems, you get those coming out a bit later too. So there's still colour there for maybe yeah. six or eight weeks. Um, and they're usually finished by now, but because of our weather this year, yeah. um, I mean, this is a, a, in its prime still and it yeah, should it be almost fantastic. died down by this time of the year. You don't have it near the gladiolus, do you? Uh, actually, so the gladi was in a pot. Yep. Um, this is in the ground, but they were, they're pretty close, yep. yeah. Yep. Yep. Good good combo. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that, the the, the, the rhubarb, I reckon, is a good combo with... Anything? Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a white version of this as well. Actually, there's two. I think there's one called Albus and one called The Bride. Yep. And it's a Colvilli hybrid, uh, except it's pure white. And those two together are a really good combo too. This, yep. the pure, they're exactly the same flower shape and size, yep. except one's pure white and the other one's this beautiful raspberry red. So they're a good colour combo as well. So when you keep them in pots, Greg, do you keep them by themselves in a pot? So you, I used to. Yeah. Now I've given away all my really rare stuff to friends. Um, so I've only got things that are very sentimental now. And mm-hmm. as long as I've got them, I don't really care anymore. Yeah. As long as I know, and I'd like to get this one back in the ground too, because yep. it does, a lot of these ones do a lot better in the ground. Yeah. And uh, um, I'm I'm just not interested in looking after pots anymore. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be getting it back into the ground. The, the Ixia is definitely in the ground. And again, my digging them up, trying to sell them with my nursery, basically I went from thousands of bulbs down to a couple hundred now. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And it's going to – I need to get them back out in the ground and planted them in good spots and just leave them alone for five or ten years and let them 
bulk up again. Up. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, very good. Um, Stephen, Helen has sent a text message in saying, really interested to know what study you completed to become a horticultural therapist. Great question. Um, so at the moment here in Australia, we don't have a formal um, study stream to get a qualification. Uh, we have um, some certificate of attainment courses on a series here in um, in Victoria, in Melbourne, um, do a, um, courses. Um, so they are, I think, about 11 or 12-week um, courses, um, and it's uh, looking at therapeutic horticulture mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the horticultural therapy working in a clinical setting context. Yep. Um, therapeutic horticulture is a more broader term that can be uh, in context of the, the modality and applied in different whole lot of different settings. Yep. From, um, so, yes, unfortunately there's no specific uh, horticultural therapy course. Mm-hmm. However, the current, and we that being said, um, there is work happening in the background to try and get some subjects and courses up that do have qualifications, but within our um, TAFE and university systems, that process does take a fair bit of time to, to get in and... and, and um, it's a bit of a challenge often because it's a bit what came first, the chook or the egg? Mm-hmm. Do we create um, the courses for people to come and do, but we don't have um, people yet to do the courses yep. in the early stage or, or not a lot, don't, not, don't have, but have smaller amounts of people or do we have the, the groundswell of people that then demand the course and then the course gets done to meet the need? Um, so it's an emerging profession, a niche sort of profession, um, but uh, so that is a bit of a challenge in regards to getting courses. So for me, when I um, I have transitioned into it from being a nurse and having um, nursing studies mm-hmm. and then having done horticulture uh, studies as well and, and combined those two um, to, to bring the knowledge and experience yep. to be able to do that work within the setting that I do. Um, but for others that are looking to get into it, I'd look into some of the online courses or things like series yep. um, that are face-to-face um, to get in, get that insight and get that um, base um, of or foundation of knowledge to start the process. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, in that sort of sphere, there's art therapy, of course. Yep. So you think there would be that? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Art therapy, music therapy, um, they've got qualifications. They've also got up to doctorate level um, in the university system. So they've advanced a little more. Um, I think part of our challenge with the therapeutic horticulture um, avenue is that it's um, a young-ish profession, uh, a youngish field, mm-hmm. um, not really a profession as such yet, but a youngish field. So it does take that time and momentum to get, you know. You, you, but having said that, you look back on a lot of um, allied health professions, yeah. um, OT, occupational therapists. You know that was an emerging over the last uh, decades. Um, it's changed over from thirty or forty years ago to where it is now. So that's developed and evolved. Um, so as has art and music therapy. Yeah. So we'll get there, just take a little bit of time. Mm. Some future PhDs there. Mm, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah, sorry I can't be of more specific go to this place and go to this yeah. place to get a qualification, but we are getting about there. it. Because the other thing to, to add to that is that people come into the field from different backgrounds. Yeah. Some come into it from a horticulture background and then 
add into the experiences of working with people and yep. the context of how that might be, whether that's in a, a, a hospital setting or a community-based setting or working with youth or children or aged care. But some other people also come into it from um, uh, an allied health background, it might be a, a physio or an occupational therapist, a speech therapist, a social worker, a nurse, um, yep. uh, anything in those um, fields and, and bring that um, experience, experience into the knowledge yeah mm, very good so yes excited yeah. to know that there are more people that are interested and because mm. the the applications for it are quite wide and diverse um, and the benefits then for the people that we work with as we all know as gardeners um, it's um, does provide uh, the opportunity and the tool to bring about some great changes in people's lives mm. and aren't some doctors even prescribing being out in the garden and yeah, I was reading about that recently and chatted with someone who specific who's who as a doctor was actually encouraging people. Um, it was fascinating. See, this is the great thing too. When you get out and about to open gardens, you bump into people and you have great conversations. Um, I was chatting with a, a guy who was a doctor and he was doing that and was exploring that further with people with diabetes management, um, and um, yeah actually doing that green prescription yeah saying you know part of what i want you to do is you know multifaceted one of which is spend time in the garden yeah do these activities be physical be you know active in that space um, and that's part of the treatment plan yeah nice so yes I like it all right let's get to a couple of texts that have come through anthony from bow morris i have a dragon fruit from a cutting about 10 years old two meters tall supported on a pole and with about two nodes cascading over the top unfortunately i have never seen flower or fruit i've tried potash around six months ago still no luck is there anything else i can try i don't know anything about those i'm well, sorry they're, <laughs> they're a warm season plant, yeah. being yep. a cacti and um, you've done the right thing by putting it on a pole because they um can grow i think it's like three four meters and it's just this sort of thick cacti stem and it just flops over um yeah i'm i'm gonna say it's just struggling a bit in melbourne um i know you can buy them relatively easily but i think it's again one of those plants that we were talking about earlier not the right plant for the right place so it's possible um you'd always have trouble i'd be maybe moving it to a north-facing wall or somewhere yeah. where it gets that really good radiant heat all the time. Um, and, yeah. Does, does it come from tropical areas or, or subtropical or desert? I think desert? subtropical okay. sort of areas. Um, so humidity might be important as well? Yeah, Especially maybe. summer I, I, humi- humidity? Yeah, I mean, but that's, that's a good point, Greg. I, I, Anthony, just look up exactly where they come from. <laughs> And try to replicate those conditions. Obviously, yep. you're not going to be able to exactly, but if you do put it really somewhere sort of sheltered and, and warmish and um, being a cactus would um, pretty much require well-drained position uh, and try to replicate all those things that it actually needs, you might have more luck. Yep. Yeah, which is really good advice for everything, for really. Everything, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, but it's particularly to... if you want to get it to flower and yep. fruit. But then when it does flower, I know they flower through the night and um, they require hand pollination. 
Uh, so you have to sort of get up at three o'clock in the morning and go and hand pollinate your dragon probably when fruit. the bats are out. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it silly? Yeah. I know, um, oh, maybe a couple of years ago now, I did see one flowering at Bullion Art and Garden. Oh, yes. In their entry. Oh. Um, well, maybe so as you, you could ring them. And yeah, so as you're them. coming into the front of the building, yeah. there's some planters in there, and there was one there because I remember taking a photo of it and going, wow, this was great. Which is, which is another really good thing too is if you know where a plant, a healthy plant exists of what you're trying to grow, yeah. try and replicate see. what they're doing there because yeah. that, that's, that's a, often a much easier thing to replicate than finding out where it comes from in yeah. the wild. If, if you know one that's growing locally, locally. Yep. that you can sort of go and look at what's underneath and what's above and where the sun goes past and yeah. what sort of conditions that it have in different seasons and things like that, that yeah. can, obvi- that can uh, be much more helpful than... Yeah, you know, yeah, Googling wh- where they come from but in the that wild. That is and helpful too. I think yeah. both. And it's are. enjoyable. <laughs> and it's yeah, always it's good to get good as many different sources yeah. as possible when you're learning about something yes, too. Yes, you can go down a rabbit hole. Like yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I'm pretty sure that one at Bolling and Garden was a dragon fruit yeah. um, uh, and it was in a full sunny spot, mm-hmm. a bit of reflected heat around it from the pathway and um, the bitumen. Yeah. So ring up Bolling and Garden, Anthony. Okie dokie. Richard from Callista. He says, good morning and thank you for your show. We have a large copper beech, which I thought I had killed by damaging its roots while building a cubby house with my grandson during lockdown last year. Jeremy from Cloud Hill mentioned their trees had been stripped by parrots and cockatoos. I gave the tree some dynamic lifter and seaweed solution and I've noticed it is coming back. I've also noticed a huge number of small to medium-sized black ants living in the trunk. They come in and out of small holes up and down the main trunk. Should I be worried about them or will they coexist without any problems? I love this. He's just doing exactly what we were talking about earlier, just standing there up close and personal with his tree, checking (laughs) out what's going on. I don't think the ants would create a problem with the beach. I don't think. They're, they're trees that tend to get natural hollows in them yep. quite comfortably um, and they're quite resilient. Uh, I've heard that they do like alkaline soils. So what, how big was the tree, did it, did it say? Um, he said, um... I've been told that they quite like alkaline soils and I, uh, so Forest Glade's collecting beach trees, so we're trying to a beach collection happening mm-hmm. for the for the plants trust and um i've been planting a lot of smaller beech trees and finn uh from autumn joy nursery who's been getting most of them for us uh told me to whack down some lime uh when i yep. planted them and that made a huge difference because yeah, okay. <laughs> we've got quite acidic soil yep. uh volcanic soil up there and yeah putting a couple of handfuls of crushed limestone down through the around the tree when I was planting it um, has made a huge difference in uh, in the ones that I've planted. Yeah. Um, so depending if it's if it's a bigger tree, he does. He says large. He doesn't say how large. Yeah. If it's a bigger tree, that might not be something that's that important. Okay. Um, yep. And if it's coming back anyway, mm. you probably wouldn't just, just let keep it go. Up the seaweed yeah. But the solution. ants shouldn't be a, yep. the ants shouldn't be an issue. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unless there's something on. Something else going on with it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like he's doing the right things. If it's, you know, it's it's putting energy back into the roots and then the shoots. Hmm. So he's feeding the roots and then that feeds the shoots. Yeah. So tree happy, grandson happy. Correct. (laughs) Cubby and tree (laughs) tick. Yes. Sounds good. 
What are some of the plants you brought in, Stephen? Um, I brought in a couple from the perennial patch. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, my favourite ones, and this is we've got, um, is the uh, Nyphophia, the poker. This is the Shining Scepter. Mm-hmm. I think this is a antique perennials purchase. What well, definitely know it is. I'm sorry. Um, it's beautiful. I love them because they just have this. Uh, they multiplied enough now in the last couple of years that there's this sort of period of time. It's probably a, so you, about four to six weeks of just this torches of yellow. So this one. Uh, starts off with a bit of yellow but then goes into orange towards the top um, and um, so it's a really nice bright um, planting and I've got it uh, in combination with one of the salvias mm. um, which is the Osfreeland Aus- 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 I can't even get my pronunciation <laughs> we'll take your word for it. Um, but it's the beautiful purple spires mm-hmm. um, so it's a really nice combo um, so I do like my yellows and purples. Um, so They're bright, aren't they? Mm, it's good to put things Especially in the garden that, warm, that you do like. That warm yellow, orange, orangey yellow. Yeah, with, there's with often the purples. Yeah, it's often the paler ones. They just kind of look a little bit sort of meh. Yeah, me. washed <laughs> like, out. Yeah. Oh, just, not not to diss them, but you know, um, I just yeah, this is a bit more vibrant. Um, mm. This particular shining scepter. Um, so yeah, that's the. So I brought those in. Um, the thing I love about the salvias is that you actually do get a second flush. So once they've done their main flower um, burst for spring, mm-hmm. give them a, a cut back and then they'll do a second flush. Mm-hmm. Now, depending on the seasons as to how good that is, um, but you do then get a second burst later in the um, the growing season, mm-hmm. um, which is really nice before you do the hard cut back. Yep. Um, and from a, a, a environmental environment point of view as in who who comes to live in that space the the blue banded bees love the salvias um and i also find i've got one of the other salvias here which is royal bumble which is a, mm-hmm. a red one the um the top part of the stems is quite dark so actually it was a nice little uh, contrast in itself but um with my neighbors we often chat about oh yes i've seen the the, the blue banded bees um on these so it's really nice to be able to, as, as a planting combo, um, they're really great and I love them um, and we all enjoy them, but they also bring in butterflies, the bees, dragonflies. Not where we are, not in that little pocket. It's yep. just, it's not protected enough. Um, friends of mine that live further out, uh, northern, north Warrandyte way, will often ring up, hi, how are you going? Super excited! I've just been watching my my spine bills in the band. I've got a bit of bamboo in one little spot, and she's like, "They're nesting in there," and had this wonderful conversation about her spine bills. Yeah, um, yep. but unfortunately, we don't have them. We've got a, a random clump of um, the nephophia, which yes. uh, someone planted many, many, many moons ago, and the eastern spine bills go nuts. For yeah, they just always, and they act like the hummingbirds. They just sort of <gasps> hover outside the flower and. and <laughs> take their nectar if there's anywhere else I'd, I'd like to be in this world purely just to see and experience things is to be where the hummingbirds are i reckon i'd just see the videos of them online and go they're such tiny little Insane, creatures they? yeah. and they're just beautiful and how they just hover so yeah. i'm getting distracted by yeah. by nature, by nature yes. that. what else have you got there so um, this is from your home garden so this right? is from the home garden yeah. and the other one that's in that patch which is everyone probably quite familiar with it's just the lamb's ear mm-hmm. um is uh, starting to do its shine, starting to come up and do its thing at the moment. Yep. Um, so they were the main ones from the uh, perennial patch. Um, although 
in the garden, the Ruscus, this is Hyperglossum, um, is one of my little favourite ones as a really interesting um, plant. Evergreen, the, so what I've got here is a, just a, a st one of the stems and it looks like it's got leaves with little um, protrusions mm -hmm. on the leaves. What the what looks like the leaf is actually a flattened stem, and the leaf is actually halfway down is in the middle of the stem. Oh, that's, so that's the that's leaf, the that's leaf the and the little flower that comes out. But the what you would typically look at it and go, oh gee, that's got lots of long flat leaves on it, are actually technically flattened stems. Um, and they uh, it just sits. I've got it in uh, the garden in deep shade, and it's just powering along by itself doesn't get any i don't actually give it any extra watering so i kind of brought that one in but one because it's an interesting plant but also i do like plants in the garden that don't need me to give them a lot of attention no. i think i've had give me some really fascinating i remember someone saying about those is it's the sort of plant you could leave underneath a stairwell for six months and it'll be fine <laughs> correct <laughs> um and it's just a really nice deep clump of yeah. um solid that clump of, of, of uh, foliage in a, in and, a, and again it's it's a, as from a distance it just looks like a solid clump of green but it's one of those things that when you get up close looking at the flowers on those flattened yep. leaf-like stems they're really interesting little flower they are uh, flowers to look mm. at uh, you know with a macro camera or yep. a magnifying glass or something too yeah so yes just looks like a, a, a regular green bush yeah mm. but then has this little interesting aspect to it and you're going Absolutely, that's fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Um, I like, th and I also do like things that give you a little bit more than what you expect. As in, there's, an, there's an element of unexpectedness Something to else, them, and yeah. you go, "Oh wow, there's more to it." And you go, "Just like us humans, yes. we have a look at people, and we go, oh, they they'll be like this.'" And then you start chatting with them, and you go, "Wow, you're really fascinating. Yep. You've got some interesting yep. things that you know. Tell us more about these mushrooms or these ixias, and yep. you know that kind of situation." And you just it's a really good little example. Yes, everyone has a, another story. Yep. Um, I've got more here, but I know that Greg's got a, a collection down here that he I reckon... He does have a collection. I'll quickly get to this text because um, I'm pretty sure it will be all over it. This is from Rosie in Mount Eliza. Hello, everyone. What a great show. Can I ask how to prepare some depleted soil where I have removed a number of large mini cogs, so that's acacias, yep. over 20 years ago? I oh, Over 20 years old, sorry. I want to replace some with a mixture of natives and non-native shrubs. I'd also like to move a woolly bush into this area. It is currently half a metre high. I've been told natives don't like to be moved. How can I do this without killing the plant? So woolly bushes generally, I've, I've, they have a have a, a tendency to just turn up their heels and go, no, I'm done. Yeah. Um, which is a shame because they're such a beautiful plant. Um, so I'd, pr if you really want to move it, I'd give as much of a root ball as you can, like a digger, a wider, um, wider area around it, and try and keep the soil together. Yeah. Don't disturb it, in other mm. words, at all. And it is one disturb of Disturb it without disturbing it. Yeah, Proteaceae. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a, a plethora of natives which are fine to be moved. Yeah. So those in, in the Myrtaceae, the eucalyptus family, are, are generally fine, but those in the um, Proteaceae family, of which the Adenanthus is one, um, yeah, generally can be a little bit trickier. Mm. That's it. The, they lack a mycorrhizal partnership, a lot of the Proteaceae too, so 
which might add to why they're a bit harder to shift because yeah, they're solely relying on their own root, so, yeah. root, yep. root system rather than having a helping hand from fungi. Yeah. yeah. But for the soil context, given that she the, the interest is to put a mixture of native and non-native, um, I'd be if it was me, I'd be putting a bit of com, uh, organic material back into the soil, but not too rich if you're wanting to put natives. Try obviously. and liven it up, essentially. Try and liven up what you have. Yeah, give some give some substance, but not too nutrient rich. Mm. If you're wanting to have natives, more organic matter rather than fertilizer. Correct. Yeah, yep. compost. Much, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just try and reactivate that soil. Yep. And, yeah. Good. All right, Greg. All right, on. I'll try and get through. I just grabbed a heap of stuff. I didn't expect to get. Yes. Which which ones are your favourite in the list? You've got. I know, um, no, that's a hard. Uh, well, one of the one thing I can get through pretty quickly is I bought three different things in that uh, I've either grown from seed or discovered as a seedling, and now they're big trees. So I've got two maples, which uh, years ago when I used to work at Forest Glade about twenty years ago, I dug up as little tiny, maybe three foot tall trees. Um, one of them's a very fine, so they're both Acer palmatums. Uh, one had a, is a green, green foliage and has a very narrow divided leaf. Yeah. So it's, it's just Acer palmatum, but it's got these very narrow fingers, um, and a stunning little tree. I think it would have only been a, about two or three feet tall when I dug it out 20 years ago. And now it's, you know, meters tall. It's a, it's a, it's quite a nice little tree. And it's uh, just this year and last year, it started to produce a heap of seed pods in, in abundance too. So it's got these beautiful, you know, little butterfly uh, wing nuts all over the, the maple and this very fine leaf and goes a nice sort of mid-yellow in yep. autumn. Um, the other maple I bought in, again, as a seedling from Forest Glade, was probably a seedling off one of the burgundy weeping maples. Um, that That would have been one side of the parentage and the other you know, just one of the uh, tree maples. And so this one's now probably about four or five metres tall. Yep. Um, and it's got that deep burgundy. It comes out of deep burgundy in spring and then goes hot yellows and oranges in autumn. Really beautiful colour. And again, this year it started to produce seed pods, which are also a nice sort of even uh, yeah, reddish colour with a little greenish mm. tinge to them too. So the, the fruit pod, the seed pods on this particular maple are stunning as well and then it's got these beautifully divided uh uh almost like cannabis shaped mm. leaves mm. so they're really finely divided, divided a bit wider wider in the center of the, each little division and yeah this beautiful deep burgundy color now the other one is something i actually grew myself from seed which is a cornus causa and it set its first flower about three or four years ago so that's probably i'm guessing it's 20 years old from seed wow um, it flowered for the first time about three or four, five years ago, but it looked like there was something wrong with it. It never produced very good flowers. And then this year, so again, the tree's probably up to four, four metres tall, I guess now, maybe a bit taller. Uh, this year, for some reason, it's absolutely laden with flowers. So it's just this white, this beautiful sort of, uh, uh, very pretty white blob in the garden. <laughs> you described um, it much nicer before. Yeah, the I can remember the words. You, you said the branches <laughs> were really horizontal, and then the flowers hovered above the branches. Oh, yeah, so so the, the the branches tend to be. It's not like the tabletop dogwoods. They they sort of slope down a little bit further. So mm-hmm. there's sort of like these um, 
uh, yeah, gentle sort of curve in, in the branches as they sweep down towards the ground. Um, obviously, it'll get a lot more interesting looking as it gets a bit older and a bit bigger. Yeah. Um, but uh, And then the flowers all sit on these little stalks about four or five centimetres long, mm-hmm. which means the flowers hover off the 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 leaves of the of these uh, sweeping branches that come down off the tree. It's yeah. very pretty, and and you get the fruit on it as well. Dogwoods are really really good uh, small trees for gardens because mm-hmm. you get so much from them. But you get... that seems like they're quite wide. They can be. I think some of them are. Uh, in fact, I think Kaus's height more uh, has more height on it than width. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a. I think it's a bit more of a narrower tree. There are there are definitely wider dogwoods, but yep. I think. I'm pretty sure cows is more one that will tend to grow up with short sweeping branches mm. rather than some of the ones that are quite open and broad, like the Floridas are a much broader, wider tree. Yep. But I think uh, the cows tend to go up a little bit more yeah, well, than out. Definitely worth people hopping onto our socials a bit later when Liz pops them up because, yeah. That, I'll, that I'll try and get a picture of one in the garden too because yeah, I've got a photo of the branch I brought in. But, um, yeah. but as I say, you get flowers, you get seed pods, beautiful red strawberry-like seed pods yeah. later in the year. And then really nice autumn colour as well, and it's a lovely shaped tree. So dogwoods are really worth their worth their spot in a in a smaller garden. Beautiful. Well, on that note, we should finish up. So we're at uh, almost quarter quarter past nine again. So I would like to thank Greg Balderston and Stephen Wells for coming in and sharing your fantastic knowledge. It's been an absolute treat as usual. I'd like to thank Vern, um, our producer, and Vern's also training Di and Tom. So thank you everyone for coming in. I'd like to thank Liz for doing our socials. And uh, we hope to um, have you back again this time next week. So until then, bye-bye for now. 